Let's pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called Whatever Happened to the Power of God, trying to figure out where did God go. And we've looked at a number of different reasons because the God of the Bible that we read about does not seem to match the God of the Bible in reality, at least the one we're seeing, except, you know, maybe, maybe here recently, you know, as we're watching a miracle transform right in front of us because, uh, as I said, he shouldn't be sitting here now. And so we thank God for that. But what, what happened to it? And we've looked at a number of different reasons. Part of it is our, our, our upbringing. You know, we've, we've accepted a church that has no power. They, they believe in the, the, the reality of God, but there is no power there. They're because they're thinking, well, God is up there, and we are down here. He doesn't really intervene in our lives in that way. And the truth is, in our culture today, He doesn't intervene in our life in a moral way either. I mean, what we want to do is we want to do it. And so, therefore, we make God into that image and say, yeah, I'm just going to run with that. That's what we do today. And so you've got some of that, certainly some denominational backgrounds that may have a part to play in that because they've, uh, they've gotten away from the truth of Scripture and gone more towards the tradition of the church, depending on the, the denomination. There are a lot of good ones out there. There are a lot of bad ones out there, just like anything else that's, that's out there. You know, so we just got to see where we go. And then we looked at the Word. It says, what, what does God say about it? Because not only is it the power of God, but specifically here lately, we've been looking into the idea of the power of healing. And we read in Scripture about a God that heals. Jesus healed multiple times. We see the apostles healing. We see in the Old Testament people being healed. And then suddenly at some point it stopped. And there was basically three trains of thought. The first one is the cessationist use in which God doesn't heal today because the canon of Scripture is closed. And we no longer have anything that we need like miracle-wise because we have the Bible. All we have to do is read it. It reveals to us who God is. And we either accept it or we don't. So therefore there are no miracles. There are no gifts of the Spirit. There are no any of those things today. Now, we look through Scripture, and obviously you can't make that case from Scripture, so that doesn't line up. That comes from more tradition. Then the other side of the coin was, well, yes, sometimes God does move, sometimes God does heal, but it's only if it's His will. And we looked at that and said, okay, do we know what God's will is? And yet we see time and time again where we are to pray the will of God, to do the will of God. Well, if we're unsure of what the will of God is, how can we pray it, and how can we do it? We can't make that fit logically. In fact, as we see, and you're going to see more so today, is God does not work in mysterious ways. He works in predictable patterns. You can watch how God moves. In a Greek mindset, which is what we have, when we think of prophecy as an example, we think of prediction and fulfillment. We think of, okay, this is going to happen, and then on this day it happens. But in a Jewish mindset, and remember, the Bible was written by Jewish men to Jewish men primarily, that they have this already but not yet, that they see this multiple patterns that uh, evolve inside of prophecy. And so they may see something fulfilled, but yet they're going to see it fulfilled again. A perfect example of that would be the uh, abomination of desolation. That happened prior to Christ, where... or. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes went into the uh, Holy of Holies. He created an image of himself up there and sacrificed a pig onto the temple or onto the altar, which, as you guys probably know, is a big no-no because you don't have swine. That, that's an unclean animal, and you have no foreign gods in the temple. That happens. There was this big revolt. That's where you get the idea of Hanukkah, the Maccabees, all of that kind of stuff. But yet Jesus talked about that very event in a future tense, that this is going to happen again. He tells them to be prepared for it when you see this happen. So there's already but not yet part of Scripture that goes on. But what about God moving and what about God healing? We've read this verse out of Psalm 103 every week. We're going to read it again. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. 
who forgives your iniquities, heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is David writing this. You know what he didn't say? If it's his will. See, David is talking here, and he's saying one of the benefits about being in covenant with God, remember, that's what they were, they were in covenant with God, are these things. He doesn't say that if it's his will, because he knows that it's his will. We looked at that last week in the Old Testament as we began to get into the book of Exodus in different parts, that we saw that God said multiple times as a part of their obedience to the covenant, that I will remove all sickness and disease from you, and I will not put the plagues of Egypt on on you. We're going to continue on that thought today. But let's back up just a hair because I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. We've talked about before that the miracles that Jesus did, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came that there would be four miracles that only the Messiah could perform. These are with them right there. The cleansing of a leper, the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of birth defects, and the raising of the dead after three days i.e. the fourth day. Now let me go through this very quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time here. If you want, you can always go back and listen to these and, and pick up on the, the specifics. But they believe that leprosy was given by God. You can see a couple examples of that in the Old Testament. They thought it was a result of sin or something, so it was a judgment. Thus, nobody could heal that. Only God could remove that. And, of course, Jesus did that. He healed the lepers. Then the casting out of the deaf and dumb spirit, there were Jewish exorcists. And what they would do is they would have to get the name of the spirit. Therefore, they could exorcise it. Okay? Not jazzercise it, but exorcise it. All right, thank you. Y'all are awake. Stick with me here. We'll get a little sweat into the oldies or something. So what they would do is they just ask the name. And if it couldn't tell them their name because it was deaf or dumb, not stupid, but couldn't speak, then they couldn't exercise it. Therefore, only God can do that. Now, you watch Jesus go into that pattern because he asks, what is your name? It says, I am Legion, for we are many. And then he casts them out. But you also see multiple times where he doesn't ask the name because there was a deaf and dumb spirit and only Jesus could do that. That was an expectation of the Messiah. The third one being the healing of birth defects, being born blind, being born lame, either one, doesn't matter. You're born that way as a result of either sin in your life or in your parents' life. And of course, he healed the blind man who was born blind. And there was that whole uh, thing with the Pharisees going on there where they're just grilling him. And of course, the last one, raising of the dead after three days. They believe that the spirit of a man stayed with the person for three days and he could be raised from the dead at any point in time. But after the third day, the body was too decomposed, the spirit would leave and he could no longer be raised except by God. And of course, who was this? It was Lazarus. And it specifically says twice that it was the fourth day and Jesus looked at his apostles and said, listen, it's better for you that I wait than if I go, that you may see and that you may believe. These were the expectations of, of the Messiah, that when Messiah comes, he will perform these, and these will be confirmation that he truly is who he claims to be. Do you realize that Jesus wasn't the first one thought to be the Messiah? Do you realize that he wasn't the last one thought to be the Messiah? They're still waiting on the Messiah. They didn't see him. Now, part of that process is that anytime somebody performed a messianic miracle, they would report it to the Pharisees who were in charge of the Sanhedrin, which was like the Supreme Court. And they would go and they would investigate it first and they would look into it and they wouldn't say anything, they just observe. And then the second part of that is they would begin to interrogate him. And that's why the Pharisees were always hanging around Jesus. So all of this makes sense. So you can see there was an expectation when the Messiah came that he would perform in a certain way. And he certainly did. We talked about the woman with the issue of blood, reaching out for the hymn. What was the hymn? It was the tzitzit. And it says in Malachi that uh, he will come, the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness, will come with healing in his wings, which is the word tzitzit. That's why she reached out to that. Why did she do that? Did she just have such great faith in a piece of cloth? No. She knew what the prophet had said, what was written down. 
You see, God has worked in a predictable pattern. So, what are we talking about? One more thing before we get there, because this is the third point that we're getting at, is, is healing in the atonement. Well, what is atonement? This is the definition that we gave, the penal substitutionary atonement. There are a lot of atonement theories, but not all of them work. It's kind of like everybody kind of has an idea of how something works. You have a worldview, but not all of them are good. So, what this means is penal substitutionary atonement. The word penal, when we look at this, is talking about a legal system. It's relating or used for prescribing a punishment of offenders under the legal system. It's the penal system, punishable by law. Then, of course, substitutionary, that word there, is a person or thing acting or serving in place of another. And then, of course, atonement. The last word here is the satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or injury. It's a reconciliation. What did Jesus do? He took our place, satisfying the judgment that was on mankind, that anybody who would believe in him, meaning put their faith in him, would not die but have everlasting life. You see, that punishment has been paid. Just God requires a justice for sin. He has to, or he's not just. He has no choice. So, what we began to look at is in this, in the idea of atonement, we know without a shadow of a doubt that it covers up for sin, right? He removes sin from the midst of it. It says that all throughout Scripture. But inside of that atonement is healing included in that. Because we have to know exactly what's going on. Because if healing is, then it is a right of a believer to not walk in sickness, but to walk in health. Now, do we see that today? Do we see people get sick who are believers? Of course we do. Therefore, it must not be true, correct? Boy, if we went off of how people behaved or how people walked on this earth, our theology would be all over the place. We stick with the Word every single time. So, you notice many times that when it's talking about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, it always harkens back to the Exodus. And that's what we began to look at. I want to show you again today, I want to look at this. We started talking about the ten plagues last week, right? We went through nine of them. What were those plagues? Were they just random acts of God? He woke up one day, he's like, you know what would be cool? If we took the Nile and we made it blood, that'll really get under their skin. Or how about we send them a bunch of frogs? Kyle, do you feel like, oh, she's not even in here. Oh, Kyle's got a ton of frogs out in her swimming pool. So if you need frogs, see Kyle. Anybody's looking for a mess of frog legs? See Kyle. Sure, they're big too. But did he just randomly do that? Of course not. He didn't. What was going on? These were judgment on the Egyptian gods. Now take a look at these. I, I, I went through all of these in depth. I'm not going to do that again. But these are nine of the Egyptian gods. You got Happy, who is the god of the Nile, Hecate, who is the fertility water, Renewal, Geb, the god of the earth, Kepri, the uh, Egyptian goddess, uh, Hathor was a goddess of love and protection, Isis, the goddess of medicine, Nut, the goddess of the sky, you'd have to be a nut to believe it. Okay, tough crap. Seth, god of storms and disorder, and of course, Ra, the sun god. Each one of these correspond with a different plague that happened. What was God doing? Bringing judgment, not on only these gods, but multiples, because there was more. There was a ton of these things. Now, did the Egyptians just make these gods up, wake up one day like, oh, there's Ra? No. If you read Deuteronomy 32, you will see that there were fallen angels that have taken on. They were called watchers. They were put over these places um, to bring people to Yahweh because Israel was his chosen people. So where do I get the idea that these are going against God? Are these abstract? No. It says it in the Word. Now let's look at a couple places here. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now, what is he doing? What did he just say here? This is getting into the last one. And the, the death of the firstborn, where the angel of death is going to come, it's going to get into Passover. We were going to go there today. We kind of took a side turn here a little bit, because as I was stuttering this out, I began to notice something I hadn't seen before, so I'm going to present that to you today, hopefully in an articulate way. Normally, I have some of these under my belt. This one was new, literally hit me Thursday afternoon, didn't have a lot of time to go through this, so I'm going to try my best. But here we go. The gods of Egypt. Does God bring judgment against fictitious beings? No. Why? These things were real. These were fallen angels. He, was he bringing judgment against the Egyptians? Not directly. It was the gods that they were worshiping. Let's look at this again. Exodus 15, verse 1. This is the song of Moses. I want you to see what it says here. Verse 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. What's it talking about? They've gone through the Red Sea. Right? They're singing this song. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is in his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He has chosen captains. All also are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wings. Wind, the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now watch this, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? You see, not only was he proving himself to Egypt, but he was proving himself to Israel. And ultimately, as you press forward, when they're going into the promised land, what always harkens back? They remember how the Israel escaped from Egypt. Not escaped like they got out and they weren't supposed to. They were let go because of the hand of God. They were all fearful of the hand of God because of the event that we are talking about, the ultimate event. Who is like you among the gods? These are not fictitious things. These are not just abstract idols that they just made up. These were fallen angels. Well, let's look at this in another spot. Exodus 18, verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law and all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So he's given a testimony. Check this out. This is what God did. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of Egypt. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptian. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they have behaved proudly, he was above them. Lord is greater than all the gods. You know what that word God is? going to rock your world a little bit, Elohim. 
Same word that we say is the title of God. It simply means God. Sometimes it's referencing God, but he is God amongst gods. Guys, I don't have time to go into all of that. You can ask me questions later if you want. I'm just telling you, we've got a misconception of what's going on in throughout Scripture. You see, judgment was on these gods. Jethro was a Midianite. He was not an Israelite. Now I know that Yahweh, Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. These aren't abstract. You see, God was bringing judgment upon these gods. Why? Because he is greater. These gods have kept those people down. People react and result to their worship to false beings. Look at Numbers chapter 33. Verse 3, they departed from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the first month and on the day after Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. So what are we talking about? We're talking about the Passover, the angel of death, all of that. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. What I'm showing you is the idea, because I know many people don't realize this, they don't think they're necessarily abstract that these, these plagues that were put on Egypt but they weren't directly towards the people. They were against the gods of Egypt, which were all those pictures that I showed you, and more, because we didn't go into all of them. You see, God was bringing judgment upon them because these things were supposed to point people to Yahweh and were not. This is not an abstract idea. God worked in a predictable pattern. God brings judgment. Now, as we look through this and we go forward with this, we're going to begin to get into the final plague. The final plague is the death of the firstborn. We read about this initially starting in Exodus chapter 11. We read through 9 and 10 last week. We're going to start in chapter 11 here, and we're going to go uh, kind of around this thing for a little bit today. So try to stay with me. I'll try to talk slow. I make no promises. Verse 1, chapter 11 of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people. Let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor article of silver and article of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So all the people of Egypt are seeing the greatness that is in Moses. There's only one that's not. That's Pharaoh. Verse 4, then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of animals. Then there will be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, but as such as not was like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. So he's separating. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out and all the people who follow you. After I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the children of Israel go out of his hand. Now when you get into chapter 12, that's when you get into the Passover, because it's ultimately then that the angel comes down. And how did they stay from execution? It was through the Passover, and we'll talk about that in depth next week. But the bottom line, though, is this. Anybody who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, the angel of death, would pass over. That's where the name comes from. Now, what are we seeing here? What are we talking about? We're trying to figure out who is this last judgment upon. Because this is the one, the linchpin, that allows Pharaoh to send them out. 
So there's something to this. So we want to look at the patterns and the why in this. So before we do that, in order to get there, we need to look at the beginning of this and what has caused this to happen in the first place. To do that, we're going to go to Exodus chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name later is turned to Israel. They came with each one of his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. You might recognize those names. You know why you recognize those names? Those are the tribes of Israel. Now you know where they came from. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. They're literally talking about these sons of Jacob, these people. So you had Joseph. Remember, Joseph was in there. He rises to power. He was favored in the land. Israel comes to Egypt because of the famine. They're rescued there. They're, they're thriving there. They're growing, multiplying. The previous pharaoh, they had favor in his sight. New one comes in, he's getting a little worried because they're growing and they're mightier than we. Verse 10, come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor and they built for Pharaoh storage cities in Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, and all their labors were which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shephara, and the other was named Pua. Now why is he changing tactics here? Because what he was doing wasn't working. They were still multiplying. They were still increasing, even though they were under this hard labor. So he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, which is how they did it, they didn't have these fancy beds and all that stuff. There was literally a stool that they gave birth on that they crouched on. If it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, why do you think that is? Why get rid of the boys? You can't make more boys without boys. But the wives would be taken by the Egyptians and create Egyptian babies. Okay? All right. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. That means they're good at it. I mean, let's face it, the Jews have been making lots of babies for a long time. They're pretty good. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. But the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. The midwives weren't doing it. So every time a boy was born, he was to be thrown into the Nile River. Now, what on earth is going on here? Well, we've got Pharaoh that we're dealing with. Okay? Why on earth, did I spell that right? I don't know if I did. doesn't matter. It's just O-H. I went to public school. No matter what I do, it's going to be wrong. That doesn't look right either. Was I right the first time? Why do you doubt me? 
All right. What was Pharaoh's issue? And who was he upset against? He was scared of the Jews. Why? They'd be more powerful. He's freaking out. Because they're growing so mightily and they're accumulating wealth. That's the thing that gets missed here. When they leave Egypt, they leave loaded. Cattle, gold, silver, the whole thing. They're accumulating wealth. They could overthrow his kingdom. So he is living in fear. So as a result of that, what does he do? He has every male child killed. Every male killed. You guys love my handwriting. I know you do. Every male child is to be killed. Right? It's, it's eliminating the problem. Because they can no longer make Hebrew babies, but they will make babies with the husbands of the Egyptians, and they will be loyal to Egypt. Now, just using what you know about this story, what happens with Moses? He's born, they see that he's beautiful. That word beautiful does not mean that he's a good-looking baby, okay? I know every mother thinks their newborn is adorable, but that's a lie. Every newborn looks like a wrinkled old man or an alien or something. They're ugly. Let's just settle that now. It's just the way we love them anyway, and they get cute a couple months later. Bottom line. All right, I'm off my soapbox here. But they, when they see him, when they see the word beautiful, it doesn't mean he's attractive. It means they see something about him. He's called by God. That's what that means. So what do they do? They put him in a basket and float him down the Nile. Instead of just tossing him in and say, I hope you can swim, he floats down there. Of course, he's found. We know all of that. Now, he's getting rid of every single male child. Now, we see here something in Exodus chapter 4. This is interesting. Now, the judgment of the 10th plague was on what? The firstborn son of everything. But specifically, it says Pharaoh, right? In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So what do we notice about Israel here? Well, we see here that God called them what? Israel is the firstborn. That firstborn is very important. In our culture, it doesn't matter as much. But in a firstborn, uh, in, in, a, in a Jewish culture, it comes with rights. You get the, uh, the inheritance. You get the blessing of the father. You carry on the name of the family. I mean, everything goes to the firstborn. It was a very big deal. It was a title. It, was a, it came with honor. But what do we know about Israel? Well, the firstborn is what he calls them, and you see a battle of the firstborns going on, because that's what the judgments get. But they're also brought out of Egypt, ultimately. So God's firstborn son, ultimately, gets brought out of Egypt, ultimately. They also avoid the plagues because of what? They're obedient to the word of the Lord. They avoid sickness, disease, and all that, as long as they're obedient to the covenant. So we see, we're beginning to see some steps form here. You've got Pharaoh who is timid, he's scared, he doesn't know what to do with these Jewish, so he takes it upon himself, he's going to have every male child killed. We have Israel, who is called the firstborn son of God, they're the firstborn, and they're ultimately going to get brought out of Egypt, okay, because of all the hardship and things that are going on. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Remember what we're going for. We're looking at the patterns inside the covenants, because what's leading with the Exodus is what? The Mosaic Covenant. 
That is the promise that is talked about in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless your holy name and forget not his benefits. You see, of the obedience to that covenant, which is a result of them coming out of Egypt, going on Mount Sinai, they agree to God's commandments. If you keep my commandments, I will be your God. You'll be my people. You will be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed. What do you want to do? They say, yes, we agree. The covenant is cut. Blood is shed. All of that. That's what's going forward. So we have both of these things as important factors leading up to that moment. The parts we read in Psalm 103 are a result of all of this. And that is why it says so many times that they are, uh, when I brought you by the hand out of Egypt. When I brought you by the hand out of Egypt. Why? Because it was them escaping the subjection of the Egyptian and coming into what? The Mosaic Covenant, the promise of God, and to do what ultimately? Enter into the promised land. That's where it was going. The promise that God made to Abraham. Now, what does that have to do with what we've been talking about is does God heal today, and is there a promise in the atonement that has to do with healing? Well, let's fast forward to Matthew chapter 2. Let's begin to look at the New Testament because you're going to start to see a pattern develop in this. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem was with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. When you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell on the ground and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, I'll stop there for a minute. So what do we have here? You've got these magi that come from the east, all right? The area of Babylon is where they had come from. They come over there because they'd seen the star and they knew that that star represented the Messiah being born, the king of the Jews. So where do you start when you're looking for the king? You should start in the palace. So they go to the king, who was Herod, who was placed there over by the Roman emperor. He was placed there over that area and said, we are looking for this king of the Jews. Now, if you're the king and you found out the king was born, does that present a problem for you? Absolutely. It's kind of like when you're at work and you got a job, something, and suddenly they hire somebody new and you're training them to do all the stuff you do. You're like, am I training my replacement here? I mean, what's going on? You know, we begin to question. So he's freaking out. He doesn't like the sound of this. Understandably so. Now, why did they know about this star? Why did they go to Herod? Now, I've talked about this before. If you were here last Christmas, you heard about this. But remember, the Magi were the people that were over in Babylon. How did they know anything? You notice they quoted a prophecy out of the Hebrew Scriptures. How did they know that? Well, you have to go back to the time of the Babylonian captivity when they were underneath of Nebuchadnezzar. Who rose up in power? It was Daniel. Daniel was a dream interpreter. He had given that gift by God. He was risen up to power, and he was over all the Chaldeans, and he trained them in the ways. And they knew that because he was the one that brought the Hebrew word to them and also trained them in this to know what to look for. 
That is why they were there. I know it says, the, you know, the song, We Three Kings. It was not three. They traveled in a caravan. That's why there was such uproar in the area, because there's a whole convoy of these people coming in. And that's a little intimidating. So there's all of this stuff going on. But of course, Herod's like, hey, you go and find him. And you come and tell me as soon as you find him. And they're like, okay, we'll do that. But in a dream, they were warned by God, don't return to Herod. So they just took off. Now, let's pick up in verse 13. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, from Bethlehem to the edge of Egypt is about 80 miles, which is, you know, it can take about six weeks depending on, on where you're going because to get into the habitable area is more like 150 miles. This was not a short trip. But why is Matthew pointing all of this out? You've got to remember what's happening here. These four Gospels are eyewitness testimony. They're writing down what happened. And there's a reason they're putting this stuff in. And so he quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, in this, that it might be fulfilled. You're going to see that said multiple times. So let's look at this. In Hebrew, or Hosea chapter 11, Hosea is telling the history of Israel. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Was that firstborn like talking about here or was he going back to a different time? He was going back to a different time, wasn't he? Now, I am one that believes that when a New Testament writer quotes anything of the Old Testament, he's not abstractly pulling these things out. They are always in context, always using how they were meant. So did we have a time where Israel was a child? Didn't he just say he was a firstborn? We read that, right? So Israel was a child. He loved him or he would have just left him there if he didn't. And out of Egypt, he called them. Is that all true? That already took place? Yes, it is. But yet Matthew used it in reference to Jesus. So we have an already, but not yet, fulfillment of prophecy. You guys see how that works? This is all throughout. So verse 2, as they called them, so they went from, uh, from them, they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carve images. He's going into the history of Israel. Remember this. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his district and consume them because of their own counsel. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns with me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, this, uh, then his son shall, be, uh, shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let him, them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Hosea is talking about a post-exile promise here at the end. So you've got a history of Egypt or Israel when they were called out of Egypt. He's going into this. And what do they do? They begin to sacrifice to the Baals. They begin to sacrifice their children. They begin to do and worship and, and, and bow down to all these false gods, which was a breaking of that covenant. And thus by breaking that covenant, that would put them out of covenant. But then they would have to atone for that. 
He goes through the entire history of Israel and is looking forward to the day when they are out of exile and back in Jerusalem. And it's interesting that Matthew uses this verse to speak about Jesus. Because how did Israel end up in Egypt in the first place? It's because of Joseph. Now think about that. Joseph's born, he has this dream, the coat of many colors, loved by his father. Brothers get jealous. He, he, you know, as any young son would, as he gets this idea that, hey, I'm going to rule over all my brothers. What does he say to them? Guess what? Y'all going to bow down to me. Goes over about as well as you think. So what do they do? They throw him in a pit. They sell him into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He rises up in power. And he becomes the number two. And there was these visions and stuff about this famine that was coming. And so they have all these storehouses. And if Joseph doesn't do that, the people starve. And his family comes from where they were, goes up to Egypt, and they settle there because Joseph had made provision in Egypt for not only the Israelites, but the entire nation. During this famine. So how did Israel end up in Egypt? Joseph took them there. How did Jesus end up in Egypt? Joseph took him there. You see, Joseph is awfully overlooked because it doesn't talk a lot about him. But we have Joseph in both cases. The firstborn is taken into Egypt. It gets better. Verse 16. Then when Herod saw, we're going back to Matthew, sorry, I should tell you that. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping a great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, look at what's happening here. The Magi go to the Herod, and he says, hey, yeah, go find the child, and then come back and let me know where he's at so that I might worship him as well. And, of course, they're warned by a dream to leave. Get out of here. Do not do that. So they don't. He gets mad. And so based off the time that they said they begin to see the star, it's right, Jesus would have been right around this age two area, somewhere in that age. And so that is why he said all the babies two years old and under, we're going to just kill. Now, who does that sound like? It sounds like Pharaoh. Because he was scared of the Jews taking over. He had all the male children killed. What did Herod do? He did the exact same thing. You guys see a pattern developing here, right? Okay, and then he quotes Jeremiah. Now, one more thing I want to point out. Bethlehem at this point was a town smaller than Rockport, about 1,000 people. So if the king's coming in there and having all the male children killed, it's going to create an uproar. We see a connection that Matthew brings up in this prophecy of Jeremiah. He quotes Jeremiah out of chapter 31 and verse 15. It's a reference to the exile. It's the exile of Israel, the exile of Judah, the southern kingdom, and more particularly more particularly them but he refers to the grieving and mourning that went on with the jews as they marched off to babylon because they came in and took them and took them away now let's go catch this whole thing in context jeremiah 31 verse 1 at the same time says the lord i will be a god of all the families of israel and they should be my people thus says the lord 
The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when I went to give him rest, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, you shall be a, again be adorned with your tambourines, and you shall go forth in dances of those who rejoice. You shall yet plant vines in the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry out on the Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations, proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, you save Israel, or you save people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and again and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and the one who labors with child together, a great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. So you see this fatherhood thing again. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does this flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of the stronger than he. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming up to the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flocks and the herd, their, shall, or their souls shall be like well-watered gardens, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. So far, so good. All pretty happy stuff. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Verse 15 is the only sad one in the bunch. All the rest of them are talking about rejoicing and, and getting rid of sorrow and all this other stuff. Ramah was a little town that was just outside of Jerusalem and the Babylonians marched through it to conquer Jerusalem. But it says that Rachel is weeping. Who is Rachel? Is one of Jacob's wives. So she's not weeping, she's dead. But what's it talking about? One of Jacob's wives, it's talking about her in Genesis. She had Benjamin, and who was the other one that she had? Joseph. God's telling them to stop crying. In verse 16, it says, Thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Jeremiah foretold the return of Israel from exile, the repentance and restoration of Israel. Rachel was weeping as her son Joseph and her son Benjamin and all the sons of Jacob, which is Israel, are in exile because of their disobedience to the covenant, the covenant that was promised, the covenant that came a result of Joseph being in Egypt and rising to power, making a way for Israel to come in there and be spared. And yet, later, we see Israel as the firstborn son leaving Egypt. We begin to see this pattern forming here. But the most important thing was this. In Jeremiah 31, you fast forward a couple verses. After all the exile, after all of this stuff, here's the promise. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. We see the promise out of the exile. It's referencing back to a time of even Joseph. It's quoting that. And Matthew is drawing our attention to this, all leading up to the new covenant, the Messiah to be born. That is what Matthew is bringing to our attention. 
were making a connection with the time that he led them by the hand out of Egypt. Matthew's pointing, bringing all of this together, but he goes a little further than this. We go back to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19. Now watch this. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth, that this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, it is safe to take Jesus back to where? The land of Israel. This is the only place in the New Testament that it references the land of Israel in that way. All through the Old Testament, that's what it's called, the land of Israel. All, all the places where, where the tribes were, the land that was promised as part of what covenant? It was the Abrahamic covenant that was promised that they would get the land, and the Mosaic covenant was where they were to enter in. Moses didn't get to. Joseph takes them in. It was all about these promises. And yet, here we see the land of Israel used. Why didn't he say Jerusalem? That's where they were when they left. Well, Bethlehem, technically, which is right by Jerusalem. Why didn't they go back there? He ends up going to Nazareth. He's going to fulfill a, a thing there. So this is interesting that it uses that kind of language. But why did they go back? The one who sought the child's life was dead. Okay? Now, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. You guys see how this thing keeps mirroring itself? Because what we can do is we can take Pharaoh off, we can take Israel off, and we can put Herod right here. And it matches. And we can put Jesus right here. And it matches. There's a pattern that's developed. You see, the promise in Psalm 103 is a pattern developed or a thing developed out of this pattern that, that you can thank God for His benefits as a result of all of this taking place, which brought them into covenant with God. That covenant came with a guarantee, and this was part of that guarantee, if they were obedient to it. We see Matthew tying a connection back to Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant, which is ultimately we're going to, because that in, is where the atonement lies. So are there promises in that atonement, that new covenant, that we can hold on to? Well, let's ask the question. So we're looking at patterns, and we keep going back to the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Were there promises in the Mosaic covenant that if they kept their end of the deal, God would always keep his? Absolutely. He promised them, we read that last week, that if you will be obedient to me, and keep my commandments, I will keep sickness from the midst of you, and I will put none of the plagues of Egypt on you. That's why we've gone here. We begin to look at this, because you have to pick up on what is happening. So now, let's look at Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 again, because who was the final plague on? Which God? And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh. Who's that plague brought on? Pharaoh. And on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out 
out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. Did the firstborn have a throne? He did. It says it. He's sitting on it. Even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does, not, does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not let the children of Israel go out of his hand. Which God did Yahweh judge in the final judgment in the death of the firstborn? I'll show you a picture. It was Pharaoh. Pharaohs were worshipped. They were looked at as gods. Pharaohs were considered one of the most important of all the Egyptian gods. While a pharaoh was ruling, he took on the incarnation of the god Horus and the son of Re. Once the pharaoh died, he was identified with the god Osiris, who was the god of the underworld. The ancient Egyptian pharaohs served as mediators between their people and the gods, and that is why the cultural significance of the gods relied heavily upon the beliefs of Pharaoh who was ruling. It was believed that the fate of a nation always lied directly with the Pharaoh that was in charge because they were the gods. They were the main gods. Now that seems a little wacky, doesn't it? Here you got all these other gods. Why are we worshiping a man? We see that today. Have you seen North Korea? They think he is a god. That is why they're so obedient to him. Now, who did God go after? He went after the firstborn. Who was Pharaoh keeping back? The firstborn. Moses being a type of Christ and a redeemer, bringing, Moses brought them into the old covenant that had guarantees in it, but was reliant upon their obedience. Jesus brings the people into the new covenant that isn't upon your obedience, but it was upon his obedience as the only begotten firstborn son. You guys see how these patterns are going? Because we're just getting started. Not today. Okay? Because what happens in chapter 12? You see, we've looked at the what, and we kind of looked at the why God did all of this. But what we haven't looked at is the how. You see, there was a judgment coming upon all people, but there was a way to escape. And we have to look at that as well if we're going to see what is going forward. Because the bottom line is this. Anytime a covenant is cut, there are promises in it. And if there are promises in a covenant that you are unaware of, then you won't act on those benefits. You will settle for something less than what was guaranteed. We're just getting started. I, I can't wait till next week, but you guys are hungry and the food smells amazing.